When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Cole Kushner, host of Dissect Podcast, and this is OPP. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Other People's Podcasts, where we interview your favorite podcasters and talk about the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. In this episode, I dial in the chat with Sacramento native Cole Kushner, host of Spotify's Dissect Podcast. Dissect does long-form deep-dive musical analysis of some of your favorite albums. Cole's examined modern classic albums like Kendrick Lamar's The Pimp a Butterfly, Kanye West's My Dark Twisted Fantasy, and Frank Ocean's Blonde. In this interview, we get to learn more about Cole, how he got into podcasting, his new role at Spotify, and the makings of one of my favorite podcasts, Dissect. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Cole Kushner. So, Cole, how you doing, man? How's life? That's good. It's a little crazy, but, you know, you're in a good way. <laughs> Hopefully so. Where are you, where are you based out of? Uh, Sacramento, California. Sacktown. Yeah. Where are you at? I'm in New York City, dog. Brooklyn yeah. all day. Okay, yeah, you got you're, you got me a one up on that one. I sure. mean, look, we both got two sorry ass basketball teams. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, uh, that is definitely true. Although I think I like Ariane prospects more than yours. Oh yeah, dude, dude, literally. I don't oh, know. Are, how, you, are you a Knicks fan or a Nets fan? Like, I mean, does it really matter? But. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. guess you know what I have to have some pride. I like heritage things, so I'm a Knicks fan. Okay. But my pockets are is a Nets fan. Yeah, Nets yeah. tickets are a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> so, but literally going to a Nets game, I never know who the starting five is. So, <laughs> I'm always excited for the other team. Like, oh, who who, who we playing tonight? Okay, cool, dope. That's let- kind of the, <laughs> that's the same way as the Kings. Like they they'll start a new five every. Seems like every game, but I got <laughs> I got season tickets this year, so I'm pretty stoked. Oh, that's awesome! Well, congratulations. Hey, you know what? Shaq's a part owner, so that's something to yeah, be excited about. Sure. The best player is retired, and an owner. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for being an OPP man. You know, are you born and raised from uh, from Sacramento? Yeah. Uh, tell me what it's like growing up in Sacramento. I know a lot of folks are familiar with the Bay. They're familiar with LA and like SoCal, but what's the vibe like in Sacramento? No, it's good. It's mellow. It's it's seen a lot of change in the last, I'd say, five, really in the last five years, seven years. Um, it used to be, you know, I didn't like it here about 10, 12 years ago. And um, now I really do. There's a lot of, you know, exciting things happening. Uh, the downtown area, we just got the new King Stadium and a lot more bigger acts are starting to actually play here and there's just a lot of energy here great food scene great coffee scene um so it's kind of a lot of people from the bay are actually now moving to sacramento uh, because you can commute to the bay if you want to drive an hour or whatever um, and the housing's still cheap here or cheaper than the bay 
Um, so I always kind of compare it to Portland. Um, if you're familiar with Portland, it's it's definitely not quite there yet in terms of where Portland is, but I feel like that's what it could become if we play our cards right. Like, what's the music scene like out there in Sacramento? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was actually really into it because I was like playing in it for, but I haven't played uh, live for I don't know, maybe five, seven years now. So I've kind of fallen off, unfortunately, um, on what's going on here. But a lot of great acts come from here. You know, like Death Grips is probably the latest kind of big act to come out of uh, Sacramento. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of talent here for sure. And uh, what was it like growing up for you as a kid in Sacramento? Like what was your, your some of your early influences musically? Um, musically, they definitely weren't Sacramento related musically. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, look, this is this is the glory days of Sacramento, though. This, this is uh, Chris Weber, uh, yeah, by, my, Mike Bibby, that's yeah, Pedro was, Stoyakovich. <laughs> we still hold on to that era so tightly, actually. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, musically, I guess, um. Uh, you know, I was like every kid. I wanted to be like Jimi Hendrix when I was 13. So that's what led me to get my first guitar and really what kind of really directed my life ever since then because music kind of guided my life ever since I started playing it. So, you know, it was like the classic stuff, Nirvana, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff when I was like, you know, my teenage years was my big influences. And uh, did you want to be like involved in music kind of early on in your life or... Like, where was your, your life direction uh, headed? Yeah, it was like, as, as soon as I started playing guitar at 13, I was like, oh, I, this is what I want to do with my life. You know, that, but that's kind of like every kid's dream when they start playing music. Um, but it seemed like I was more driven to make that a reality um, than most people, I guess. Funny thing is, though, you know, I had a lot of bands as I was growing up and some of them had, had some success, but uh, not, not to the level that I wanted. And then uh, that life, you know, I kind of chose to let, leave that life behind as I got older. And then I went to uh, Sacramento state, which is a really great classical music um, school where it's like more academic training. And I was self-taught ever to, uh, since I went up until I went to college. So then I came out of college um, really loving theoretical music analysis and classical music. But then I also had this background of playing in bands, which was like contemporary music. So actually dissect is the thing that I finally found success in like 20 years later, which was a like my attempt to bridge those two worlds together, like applying the classical music analysis kind of approach to contemporary music, which is what dissect is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was definitely wondering because it, it dissect is such an interesting twist um, on breaking down albums, and I was wondering like how that came about. But so it came from your your classical musical classical music background. Yeah, I think I mean it's not exactly the same, you know, techniques because it's like there's lyrics and you know there's a lot more like social stuff. You know, write a you know however long essay on a single piece of music, and I would live with that piece of music, and I'd research the composer and what was going on and what you know these things meant. Uh, and how that affected the work uh, or the piece that I was writing about. And it was really just taking that kind of approach that you don't really get often with contemporary music, especially not hip hop, where it's like, usually you'll get 
you know, an album review when it comes out. And then maybe if you're lucky, someone will write like a think piece on it. And then it kind of just goes away. And I was kind of like, well, no, these are like some of the greatest works of our time and are going to like be in the history books one day. Let's appreciate them now. And let's actually spend the time as if these were a hundred years old and we're studying them like they're artifacts, you know? And so coming out of Sacramento state, um, like what was your, your career path going to be? Like where, where did you want to go with your life and career out of, out of college? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a huge question mark. Um, like there's nothing, there's really nothing you can do with your music degree aside from get more education and then end up teaching it. I mean, there's, oh, that's exaggeration, but you know, there's a very small fraction of, you know, the percentage of people that graduate in music actually get a career doing it. So I was like most music majors and kind of just questioning what the hell I, you know, why did I, although I loved doing it, it was like, after you get out, it's like, oh, I'm in debt and I have a music degree. It's like, what's that going to do for me? So I worked in, um, I got a job at a specialty coffee shop while I was going to college. And I really fell in love with the specialty coffee thing, actually. So I really geeked out on that and learned as much as I could on that. So I was actually building a pretty good career there in the specialty coffee world. Um, but then I was doing Dissecta on the side, essentially at night when I'd get home from work, I'd be working on Dissect. And, you know, I just kind of started it as, you know, I didn't have anything creative going on. And I'd always up until that point had something creative, whether it was, you know, writing pieces of music or being in a band. And so that kind of substituted that creative outlet for me. Um, and so that's really why I did it. I did it, didn't really do Dissect to, to, to make a career out of it. That wasn't the goal. That's what ended up happening. Um, but the origins of it was super humble. I just kind of was doing it to fulfill my own personal creative need. And then putting it out in the world was just really to force myself to actually see it through. Because I quickly realized, actually, you know, it sounded great in my head. When I actually go to do the work, it ended up being like 20 to 30 hours for every 30-minute episode. Ooh. So times that by 22 episodes, and it's a hell of a lot of work. So I kind of published it just as like, okay, if I have an imaginary audience, even if it's like a handful of people, it'll push me to actually like see this thing through. Um, but then, you know one thing that led to another and here I am doing it for a living, which is still really wild to think about. Because, um, how did you discover, you know, podcasting as a, as a medium initially? Yeah, that was, I mean, that's actually, I had my daughter, um, uh, who's three now, but when she was born, um, uh, I don't know, do you have kids? I, I don't have kids. No. Okay. Yeah. When you have like, when they're in the first, <laughs> Three to six months, if you ever have kids, you'll realize, you know, all they do is sleep and eat. So when they were sleeping, when my daughter was sleeping, I'd have podcasts going. And that's when I really started to listen to them because it was a good thing to just like have on in the background. Uh, and so I really got into a few podcasts. Serial, like most people, it was like my entry point into podcasts. And, you know, the Dissect is actually kind of built on Serial's uh, structure like that serialized I call it a serialized music podcast at the beginning um, but Wait, that funny, was really it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I always say in um, with with people it's almost like I, I started just like you I started off with music and making music and when you first start off in music you kind of steal other people's style or you kind of 
you have nowhere to kind of go with it creatively. So you kind of say, oh, I like this person. And it kind of builds your style as an artist. But it's very interesting that Serial kind of took that approach. For Silent Giants, my other show, um, I would say How I Built This was also a major Um, kind of influence. Um, Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure that's true about just about anyone doing anything creative. I'm sure there's a tie back to something that was the main inspiration. Um, yeah, so mine, yeah, definitely mine was serial, but also have you ever heard of the great courses? No, never heard of that. What's that about? So the great courses are pre podcasting. They were downloadable college courses that you could take at your leisure. It wasn't for credits or anything. You just download a, a class that was taught by a world famous professor. That person would record you know, 16 lectures on a certain subject and you download them all at once and you can kind of binge them if you want. And this is pre-podcast, pre-Netflix. It was kind of, um, I feel like they were like kind of the original podcasts. Uh, so I was, funny thing is, is like when I went to college, I didn't have any musical training and I kind of stuck my way into the music program and I didn't know how to read music or anything which is obviously a big problem. (laughs) Um, So I was taking these, I found these great courses on music and they had like, I don't know, 15 or 20 courses. And I like downloaded every single one. And I was like supplementing my lack of education. I was taking these audio courses while I was taking like 20 units at college um, just to kind of survive and make up all this education that I missed. But the great courses is actually exactly what I modeled dissect on in terms of structure. It was like, here's a class on Beethoven. Every lecture was, uh, you know, a move, like analyzed a movement or something from a symphony of his and it accumulated into this, you know, overall analysis of a Beethoven piece. So I really took that approach, mix in a little serial like cliffhanger and just like, you know, that need to want to hear the next episode that's really what dissect was is kind of like modeled after those great courses. Wow. Wow. Well, now I'm definitely have to go back and check out those earlier, those earlier shows you mentioned as well. Uh, yeah. I'm checking them out. They're, um, they're great. If you, I mean, if you like learning, like podcasts have kind of filled the void of it, but like, they're still really great. And, and tell me the origin of, and the story um, behind, you know, the, the initial first steps of, of making uh, the show. And how did you come across, deciding to do Kendrick's The Pimp a Butterfly for season one. Yeah, that was, and yeah, so I mentioned my daughter. So my daughter was born on uh, March 14th and To Pimp a Butterfly came out on March 15th, the day after. And so I remember really vividly like holding her in my arms at my house on the first day we took her home and listening to that album in headphones. And it was like, five in the morning or something because obviously she wasn't like sleeping regularly um it was like this really beautiful experience for me um and more than that just the album i mean i was just so impressed with that album it also had that story that was you know you could tell there was a story going on but you couldn't really fully understand it unless you i felt like unless you actually took the time out to really analyze this work and so all those kind of things I've already talked about really combined. It was having that background with classical music and contemporary music, having the great courses, you know, my daughter being born and me listening to podcasts, that album coming out. 
all those things really mixed. And it was just like, I didn't really even think that hard of it. It was just the, the idea was like supernatural. It was like, oh, I want to learn more about this album. Oh, I have this, I, you know, I really love these great courses. Why don't I try to do that? But th- that same approach, but to put it to this contemporary hip hop album that would bridge my classical and, you know, contemporary worlds together. And I'll publish it as a podcast because I'm listening to podcasts and I think they're great. Um, so all those things really like homogenized pretty organically. Uh, so there wasn't really a lot of thought into the, the concept that came really naturally. Um, and I have a, you know, pretty, I used to record like my bands and stuff. So I had an audio background and so that was really natural to me too. So the process was, yeah, like I said, like pretty organic all the way through. Um, so it it never really felt like something out of my reach. It was, it all felt like this is supposed to happen or something. How long was it, uh, did it take for you to like take action? Like what were the first steps as far as taking action and making the show? Uh, happened yeah, to was, for me, it was the, getting started on the scripts because my, my show is heavily script-based. Or I mean, it's really everything is in the script and I just read it on air. Um, so it was really just sitting down and bit, like just getting that initial structure, the episode structure. Um, so most of my work is in the research and the analysis and then writing it all out. Um, that was the biggest step and that was that's still to this day the, the most amount of work. Like I said, it takes 20 to 30 hours to do an episode. And I would say 80% of that is on research and writing and the other 20% is on production. So what goes into the the research behind, uh, you know, and particularly that first season, because obviously, you know, maybe now that you're showing your third season with Frank Ocean, you may be, may be in sort of a rhythm, but initially like what was the, the research process like for you um, and hurdles you faced along the way yeah the the i would say the research is just it's it's interesting because these are such contemporary works there's not like when you you study anything in history like when i was studying like beethoven or shostakovich or some classical composers there's so many books essays there you know hard copy things you go to the library and there's just endless resources but because these works are so contemporary you know, I would say 95% of my research is just like Google searching and YouTube and just finding articles, interviews, anything I can that was, you know, it's usually about the release of the album or the time that all the media happens around the time that the album comes out. So it's really just digging through that stuff and seeing if I can grab any kernels um, from those things. And then um, I guess the biggest part for me, what I ended up learning was that I had to be really, really organized in documenting all that because you could go on, you know, a YouTube three hour binge. And if you're not writing down links and quotes and stuff, it was like, it all kind of becomes a waste of time because you don't really remember anything where anything is. So I kind of built this structure where I, if I was listening to an interview, I would be, writing notes the whole time. I would be time stamping certain things I think I'll use, writing it all down so that when the time comes, I could just pick from my document super easy um, instead of having to go back and watch like the whole video or read the whole article again. So that was definitely, I think, the biggest efficiency thing for me um, was 
just staying really, really organized. Now, let's say, for instance, um, from from the time you started in, you know, that March, you know, when did you complete that first season? Do you remember? Well, I published it August of that year. I didn't have the full uh, season whenever I did publish it. I didn't have the full season. I had like, I want to say four episodes in the bank completed. Okay. And then I published episode one and then I would work in real time as I was publishing them weekly. Um, which kind of kept the pressure on me to actually like really just put my nose down and get it done. Now this is kind awesome. of like built-in deadlines, which I definitely need, or I don't do anything. So, was there like an initial? We released the first episode and the second episode. Was there an initial um, audience, a wave of people who uh, were awaiting this? One thing for me, I, I interview people, so people have social media. Um, they're able to kind of promote like I'm promoting but they're promoting as well for their episodes that's a natural way of getting traction but for you this is very uh internal this is just you writing the script and putting it out so how are you able to grow your audience out yeah that's kind of a funny thing um because it it was really really slow going at the beginning um like the first you know handful of episodes were just like you know a few hundred listeners at that um and so Apple somehow picked up on it early on um, in the season and they put it as their editor's choice on the homepage of the, of the Apple podcast um, app or whatever. Okay. And that, I feel like that was like the initial like flint. Um, but even by the end of Dissect season one, I think I only had like 10,000 subscribers ish probably i would guess um you know which in the which is not bad but it's like in the grand scheme of the podcast world that's not that much um but the thing was is and i really think um i always try to hone in on this when i give interviews like i didn't i wasn't doing the podcast to become famous or to find success in it it was really something i was doing for me and like I said, I was putting it out there to kind of just put pressure on myself um, to do the best work I could. And I say that only because I think if I were to, if I had tried to create a show that I think other people would have liked, it would have not been this show. Like I never thought my in like wildest dreams someone would want to sit through a 13-hour analysis all said and done on a single album. I just didn't think there would be like, I wouldn't think there would be a big audience for that. I thought maybe musicians like me might be interested in it, but beyond that, like, I don't, I just never really thought it would have an audience, but because I did it, I feel like with like honesty and authenticity, I think that really helped the show um, just be authentic. And I think people, especially in the podcast world are really attracted to, things that are authentic. That's why they're turning to podcasts where it's kind of uncensored. You can state what you feel. It's more than a sound bite. You can have long conversations or you'll listen to a podcast that goes really deep on one subject. It's not just like clickbait stuff. So I didn't really know that, but that kind of worked in my favor too, um, that, yeah, there was an audience for this. Um, and when I once I kind of got that seed that, okay, there are people listening and they reach out to me uh, via email or whatever. And I could tell, like, if you're into it, you are really, really into it. 
which makes sense. Like if you're not going to sit through a 13 hour analysis, if you're not into it. So the people that actually listen and, and stayed, I could tell by the, the way that they're writing me in their emails that they are really passionate about the show. So that's when I got that seed, I was like, okay, maybe there is something here, but still by the end of season one, it was not like anything I could build life on. Uh, but season two launched and that's kind of like when the snowball effect, uh, started and the show kind of really just took off from there. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, why, why did you choose uh, Dark Twisted, a fantasy for the second season? Um, I, I mean, I always wanted to do, I knew I was going to do Kanye pretty much uh, for season two. I've always... You know, I've been a long time fan of Kanye. Uh, and I just think him as a person is really, really interesting and in kind of what he represents in today's culture. He makes really great music. Um, and I think it has a lot more depth than people realize. Uh, picking Twisted Fantasy, that was the hardest part is like what album, because you could really do any album of his. Um, but I thought it was couple of things i thought musically it was a really great uh kind of combination of quote-unquote old kanye and new kanye it's kind of like a really nice rounded homogenized version of kanye west and i also thought the events surrounding the album were really interesting and said a lot about like contemporary culture the whole taylor swift thing him kind of falling from grace having suicidal thoughts and then kind of coming back and winning over the public with this like massive, you know, perfect album. So all those things kind of combined to make me decide on that album. Because you have um, the Pimp a Butterfly, you have Dark Twisted Fantasy, and now you're on Blonde. Um, like, is there a certain criteria that, you know, that kind of goes into an album that you would select? Like, is it historic, historical and pop culture context? Is it musicality? Like, what are the things that you look for in an album that you go, ah, I would love to dive, dive into this? Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's it's all those things. It's, I mean, it's really hard to pick. It's the hardest part of the show is picking the album uh, just because I'm about to spend six months of my life, you know, with this album every single day. And it really has to have enough of all the stuff you just named, musicality, lyricism, cultural context, impact, all that stuff to stand up to this, this type of scrutiny, which I would say the majority of albums out there couldn't do. Um, so I need to really make sure that even if I love the album, I really need to make sure that it's going to be able to fulfill an entire season or else I kind of trap myself into something that's not going to work. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very hard decision. Um, you know, season one was the easiest because it was all part of that kind of natural thing. Uh, season two, it was it was hard, but season three was definitely the hardest choice. And uh, but I think I picked a great one, so it's working out. 
Uh, do you have a personal favorite season so far that you've dissected and, and, and why? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd probably say this one just because I feel like it's the most polished and I have the most amount of time since I like I was able to quit my job and just do this. So I hope this is the, the, the best one in terms of, you know, the quality and, and the just just everything about the show. It seems like season two is definitely the most popular still. Um, and I think that's just because Kanye is so magnetic and that album is so iconic and it's, you know, seems like everyone's favorite album ever. So um, that one, you know, I'm pretty proud of all of them. I would say like the first season is really, really hard for me to listen to though. Just the production and like my delivery and stuff was shaky, um, at least compared to what it is now, I feel like, but yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite one. They've all been different and unique in their own ways. And I've learned a lot from all of them. That's my favorite part is I learned so much, not only about the artist and the music, but also just about kind of life in general. Uh, that's kind of where I see the show, what the show's purpose now is, um, you know, what could we learn from great music and great art? What are the kind of the life, life lessons and kind of philosophical discussions can come from the music and how we can apply those to our actual life is like what I'm really interested in now. How has Dissect changed your life uh, personally and, and professionally? Um, professionally, that's pretty easy. I mean, um, there's a lot of interest in the show, outside interest from the show during season two. Um, so, but I ultimately chose Spotify. They had the best deal for me. and It seemed like a natural fit them being like a music um, app obviously and they're getting heavily into podcasts too so um, you know the great thing about working with Spotify is I have actually have a full-time like salary position to create the show which you know in a podcast space that's kind of unheard of so I was definitely fortunate to link with them so professionally yeah this was something that I was doing at night uh, waking up really early and just not sleeping to get it done but now you know, I was able to quit my job and I get to do this, you know, 40 hours a week and get paid for it, which is, you know, pretty amazing. So that's definitely changed my life uh, professionally. Personally, though, the change began right away in season one before even anyone was listening. Just taking the time to sit down with these great works of art, especially Kendrick's To Pimp a Butterfly, that taught me so much about just things I didn't fully understand social issues, racial issues. It really honestly changed the way that I thought about the world. It changed the way that I acted in the world, uh, made me more empathetic, uh, just more compassionate in general, I feel like. Um, and it really, really set my life on a new kind of, I don't know, philosophical, spiritual kind of, you know, just how I approach things in the world really changed, like honestly changed with just sitting down with a great piece of art, like to pimp a butterfly. Same thing happened with season two, same thing's happening with season three. So that's why I'm really passionate about like encouraging people, not only through dissect, but just in their own life. You know, if you love something, there's a reason for it. And maybe you take a little bit more time than you usually would to discover more things about that thing you love. Um, and see the effects that it can give you because, you know, it could change your life potentially in a good way. 
You mentioned that you were at this job. Uh, the, was this the coffee shop job? Yeah. So, so you were there at the coffee shop job up, up until recently for the last couple of years while you were still producing the first and second season? Yeah, I, I just, season three is the first season I've done it full time. I just, that all happened in January of this year, 2018 is when all that went down. So I've only been doing it full time for six months now, seven months. Wow. Um, so were you able to, to monetize the first or second season season at all? Season one, no. Uh, we didn't raise money. I raised some money for uh, Bicentennial High School through donations and selling merch. Uh, we don- That was Kendrick's old high school that we donated to. What? Um, that's cool. Yeah, man, that's like actually good. Um, that was one of the... That's, again, talking about changing my life. So I donated to Kendrick's old high school, the music program there, because Kendrick's has since donated to that high school too, the music program. So I wanted to do something in honor of, you know, to pimp a butterfly. And so listeners contributed and I we donated a few thousand dollars to this program. And then they used the money to take people, the some of the band members that couldn't afford it on this tour um, where they got to play music. And I actually was able to um, go visit them, uh, the, the kids, and watch their performance and got to meet them after the show. Um, which was one of the greatest things that I ever done in my life. It was, I'll remember it forever. It was just a really great kind of just punctuation mark on the whole season. Um, you know, that's kind of, you know, I talk a lot about on the show about art inspiring action, like real life action, everyday action. And that was kind of putting that, that philosophy into practice. Like, yeah, based on Kendrick Lamar's work, we, we raised money, donated it, had real effect on real people. And then more than that, I actually got to go experience it myself um, in person, which was just, yeah, it was a really great experience. Wow. But oh, back to your back to your question. Um, yeah, so monetizing personally for me, no, not at all for season one. All of it was donated. Season two, we actually did raise money for um, uh, Social Works, which is Chance to Wrap. Um, uh, charity, but I also monetize through Patreon uh, per, for personal income too. Uh, have you heard of Patreon? No, I, sure, I, yeah. I have not. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because you know there's a lot of people in the podcasting space who you know look at you as a as a leader in the space, and they probably want to know like I want to do this full time. Like, how do I do this? Um, what, what is Patreon? Yeah, I think. So Patreon is great. It's I would say the majority of people in podcasting, if you want to monetize, do go through Patreon. Because um, my situation is definitely very, very rare. Uh, but so Patreon is a website where people can go and give you monthly contributions. So up like one dollar a month, all the way up to I had some people giving me twenty dollars a month to produce the show or produce whatever content you're doing. So YouTubers use the site, even like some uh, scholarly, like academic folks that are just writing research papers and stuff use it, a lot of podcasters. So you plug it on air, you send people to your Patreon page, they pledge a certain amount of money per month. And then if you accumulate, you know, you hopefully you accumulate, you know, hundreds of these Patreons that are all contributing one to twenty dollars and then i think by the end of season two i was making like 
$2,500 a month. Um, and I only had started that in season two. So that was only like a five months kind of uh, process of getting patrons. So that was kind of my game plan before Spotify came along was uh, sell ads. I hadn't sold any ads in season two at all. So my plan is, so Spotify didn't come. My plan for season three was Patreon, which $2,500 a month is a pretty good start, you know, to make a living and then selling ads. Uh, I think if I, you know, if I, Spotify hadn't come, I probably could have, it would have been a really big risk, but I think I probably could have made a living doing it that way uh, through ad sales and Patreon. Okay. Wow. So, you know, I, I end every uh, episode uh, with a couple questions. And the first is the our, our podcaster's pick. Uh, so I would like for you to give me three of your favorite podcasts uh, that we should be listening to that are your favorite and describe them to me. Oh, Philosophize This. Have you heard of that one? No. What, what's that? That is this guy, Stephen West. He's a, a he's, I think he just kind of went to school for philosophy and he just really liked it. Uh, it kind of reminds me of me, uh, but he is doing it in the philosophy world. So he'll pick one philosopher's idea and he'll break it down in like 20 to 25 minutes. And he's pretty entertaining. And it's just him talking uh, by himself, kind of like what I do. But it's a really great way to kind of just get you thinking about really complex topics, but in a pretty accessible way. So that's one I would definitely suggest, especially if you like dissect. Uh, Philosophize this is pretty great. Uh, Revisionist history is really good. Have you heard of that? Yeah, that's with uh, uh, oh man, Malcolm Gladwell. Yep. Yeah. So that one's great. Uh, that one's pretty popular though too. Oh, On Shuffle is good. Uh, have you listened to that? No. Uh, what's On Shuffle? Describe it to me. On Shuffle is a music podcast from the Ringer Network, um, and they talk about it's kind of a current event music podcast so you know drake just came out with the album so they talked about the drake album uh push T, uh drake beef was going on they were talking about that so it's kind of like a current events music podcast um yeah it's, it's a great listen and uh cole last question man is why do you podcast why is podcasting important to you i guess i'll talk about podcasts as a like a, a genre type or a, a medium I think it's going to only get uh, bigger. I think people are turning to podcasts because they're kind of sick of the the kind of bite-sized depth that they get on TV, even on your Facebook or Instagram feed. You're just getting these mini, mini bite-sized clips of life that just aren't realistic. And I think people are really attracted to podcasts because there's this intellectual curiosity that's just not getting fed and Podcasts are a great way to dive deep. You can, you you know, you use found time so you can do it while you're driving or doing the dishes. So, you know, you're not competing really with any other media except for you're filling in the gaps that people already have. Um, So I think it's kind of the medium of the future. However, ironic that might be because it's a pretty simple, you know, it's just spoken word. But I really believe in the medium and I would encourage like, even if you just wanted, it's a really great way, especially to just have these conversations. Like when's the last time, when, when would you ever talk to someone for 40 minutes like we have um, and just really be able to like dive deep on some stuff uh, in real life. So even if you're 
wanted to start a podcast yourself, like it's super easy to do. Uh, the technology is pretty minimal and it just gives you a great excuse to sit down and talk to people. Um, so that's kind of, I'm really passionate on just like the, the medium of it's, itself. And I guess personally, uh, I do it because it gives me a structure to, again, sit down with one thing, concentrate really hard on you know a piece of work, a piece of art, and extract the fullest uh, amount of meaning from these great art pieces that these artists give us that, you know, if you're not careful, can just kind of, you consume them passively uh, when I feel like they have so much more to offer. Uh, So it gives me a great excuse to really just spend a lot of time uh, with art and kind of let it change my life and and, uh, share those discoveries with other people. Well, Cole Kushner, man, I really appreciate you being our OPP. I'm a humongous fan uh, of your show, Dissect, and I wish you nothing but the best. And you're the man, bro. (laughs) What more can I I say? Yeah, this is great, man. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for tuning in and to our special guest, Cole Kushner, for dialing into the show. You can find the direct link to the Dissect podcast in the description of this episode. So be sure to check it out and subscribe. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, NYC's number one studio for recording, mixing, and other audio recordings. Music for this episode was provided by Richie Quake. Special thank you to Spotify's Michelle Santucci for helping make this interview possible. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Oh, one more thing. Along with OPP, I am host of the Silent Giants podcast. Silent Giants highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. Ever wonder who designed the MTV logo? Ever wondered who recorded Prince Purple Rain or directed Michael Jackson's Beat It? We'll find out who did that and a whole lot more by subscribing to the show. The link will be in the bio, so be sure to subscribe to the show as well. Link will be at the bottom of the description. Out of here till next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.